Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah wa barakatuh. Welcome back to another show, another podcast, uh, the Muslim Geordie podcast. Welcome, everybody. And this is our second last podcast for Ramadan. We've got, we've got one more tomorrow night. And of course, as always, throughout Ramadan, we've got our, we have to give a shout out to our sponsors, HM Residential, um, Zaf and, and his crew there, Manjaro's Newcastle. Um, Umar and his boys, big shout out to all of them for sponsoring the show and the radio station. It really does, you know, so the support that we get is very, very important for us to continue the work that we're doing. And for those of you tuned in earlier, that's why we had the live appeal um, today and tomorrow from 5 p.m. to iftar time. Make sure you tune in tomorrow so that we can get your support to continue this work that we're doing. Yeah, so it's very, very important that we get the support from everybody, not just our sponsors, but you as the audience as well, inshallah. So today is going to be an interesting um, show, actually. It's going to be an interesting discussion because most of you who are watching, um, you know, have picked up on, seen, been, seen the, the scenes unfold of what's taken place last night in Al-Aqsa Masjid um, and the, you know, the... Um, the aggression that we see almost every year, you know, um, against the Muslims and worshippers in Al-Aqsa Masjid. And of course, the emotions will be running high. I think people are, um, you know, not surprised by it anymore, in all honesty. It's glaringly obvious to many, I guess, sane and balanced and unbiased people, both Muslim and non-Muslim, around the world that what keeps happening, what they see, uh, keeps happening really is a violation of human rights i think that's the only way that we can describe it and and there's and we're gonna we're gonna touch upon that in a bit more detail i think i think i read something today from the scottish smp minister you know saying something like um attacking a place of worship at any time is reprehensible but attacking a mosque during ramadan is utterly indefensible it's also a violation of international law and i think she's right when she says that i think it's it's glaringly obvious for most people that when we see this, and obviously for the Muslim, we all know the famous hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, the parable of the believers um, in their affection, uh, in their uh, affliction, sorry, in their affection, mercy and compassion to each other is that of a body. We're one body. When any limb aches, the whole body reacts um, uh, with sleeplessness and fever. And this is what we see with many Muslims today. And rightly so, that when we see any form of oppression, any form of, and I'm going to use the word terrorism, any form of assault upon any Muslim around the globe, in many places, like what we're seeing in Palestine, like what we've seen in Kashmir of late, in India, the Rohingya, and of course I can't not mention what's happening in China with the, the Uyghur Muslims today, um, and in fact, many places around the Muslim lands where we see this regular, you know, oppression and terrorism, I guess. And yes, I'm going to use that term here uh, because I really do think it applies. But, you know, as Muslims, we have to, we, we, we're going to feel it, I guess, is the term I'm going to use here. But there is a way in which we should be dealing with these issues. And I hope, hope we're going to be able to unpack some of that in tonight's show as well. And... You know, the, the, the main theme of tonight's topic is going to be on this issue of terrorism in general, right? 
And the sad reality is that even though we have answered and we continue to answer the many questions and doubts that keep getting pushed out there following this narrative, and this is the, the, the sad reality, this is the sad part of it all. When people hear the term terrorism, they automatically uh, attribute it to Islam and Muslims. And there's this narrative that's being pushed, you know, that Islam is somehow inherently violent and extreme and linked with or even epitomizes what terrorism is all about. And we hear and see the same arguments keep getting regurgitated over and over again, right? Uh, and this is whether, whether it's from well-known Islamophobes like Sam Harris or Tommy Ten Names, uh, and even he wrote a book uh, about this specifically, <laughs> or whether it's about the mainstream media and Hollywood who perpetuate the same sort of narrative. Um, we've even seen far-right politicians, you know, win elections to come into government off the back of this particular narrative, using fear of this some sort of Islamic takeover, you know, via the Islamic immigration narrative that's also being pushed. And I'm throwing all these words out and these buzzwords because they're all interlinked. In my, in my head, they're all interlinked, right? So I'll give you a quick example. In Czech Republic, you know, a, few, a number of years ago, a few years ago, um, and Czech Republic, I've been there, right? And it's got a very small Muslim population compared to most of the EU countries. But, you know, the far-right government, the far-right party, I should say, came into power using this narrative of focusing on Muslims and Islam and the Islamic takeover. And it was crazy that, that this is what he used to get into power. Even here in the northeast of England, guys, you know, you've got a group called Bishop Auckland Against Islam, right? And then there must be like, I'm not joking you, there must be like one or two Muslims in the whole town, right? Maximum. Yet they believe in this Islamic, Islamic takeover narrative, yeah? Um, so, you know, there's, there's so many things that we're going to unpack in tonight's program. Uh, and even from the Muslim perspective, right? We, we, we know that there is this narrative being pushed. We know that there are certain things being said. We're seeing what's unfolding on a global scale in Muslim lands. Yet this narrative is the strongest narrative that's being pushed out there, which even affects our youth, the Muslims, by the way, right? It affects the Muslims. Our youth growing up in this spotlight of being otherized, you know, um, Muslims who, when they travel, and you guys, my, my, my guests and co-hosts are going to, I'm sure they're going to share some of these experiences as well. When we travel, when I travel, right, it's like I'm always on edge. I'm not joking you. Yeah? It's like we know what it's like traveling whilst Muslim, right? And, and I'm sure you guys have some stories to tell as well. But there's a couple of statements from, you know, and this, is, this narrative really is, it needs to be dealt with. Uh, in all honesty, because it's 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 something which you know, even though people talk about it on a regular basis, doesn't seem like much is changing. You know, you, you saw people like Calvin McKenzie, right, the the the, the journalist and editor. Uh, he comes out with statements like, and this is the, they get away with these statements as well, by the way. Yeah, like it's obvious white people shouldn't be searched at airports because terrorists will be Muslims from Middle East or Africa, right? The boss of Ryanair made similar comments about terrorists being generally Muslim men. Um, uh, and, and, you know, there's all this, there's so many things we need to unpack in tonight's program. And I think what I want to do is once and for all, even though we've done events on this, and Elias, you've been invited to some of these events to speak at as part of IDC, we've done like the face of extremism, the face of terrorism. So if you could share those playlists, 
let people see see what we've done in the past from from the last 10 12 15 years trying to unpack these these narratives and deal with some of the um uh, the things that are being mentioned over and over and over again um we need to we need to try and deal with some of these things so this is what the program is going to be on tonight we're going to talk about the top 10 questions that i get asked from non-muslims um, about Islam and terrorism and all of that. And we're going to just blast through them as well in tonight's program. So let me introduce my guests. I've waffled on for a lot uh, to introduce this this show. Let me introduce my two guests. Um, my co-host, Elias Karmani. Assalamu alaikum, Elias. Welcome Walaikum back again. Warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Jazakallah khair for having me on again. Alhamdulillah. No Geordie no attempt today? Uh, maybe later. <laughs> but no, just making dua for everyone on this 27th night, inshallah. May first Allah accept everyone's duas. Ameen. And may Allah Ta'ala make all of your hasanat in this month of Ramadan a means for your salvation in the next world, but also a means of goodness upon the Muslimin and upon all insan. Fi kulli makan. Ameen, inshallah. Ameen, ameen. And let me introduce our guest for tonight is um, uh, Abdurrahman from Knowledge North. Assalamu alaikum, Abdurrahman. Nice to have you on the show, bro. Uh, nice to be here. And I should say that uh, you mentioned you have a co-host. The co-host is actually an expert in the field we're discussing. He has many years working in a project um, <laughs> where he's dealing, dealing with the youth and, and okay. uh, you know, accessing uh, or rather standing in the way of, between them and getting radicalized. So I think it's only fair that he's a, a co-guest rather than a co-host in, in some ways. In fact, I'm sure speaking... Well, it's, it's, it's a bit of both, actually. And, and, and it's one of the reasons why I've, I've uh, invited you both on to talk about this topic. And for those who don't know, it is very, very true. Both Elias, Sheikh Elias and uh, uh, Abdurrahman, Ustad Abdurrahman, I should say, both are, are experts in this field, right? Who have many, many years of experience dealing with this very specific topic right and 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 you're absolutely right you know mentoring the youth and uh elias knows this as well that we both actually work with the muslim youth in dealing with some of the the doubts and um i don't want to use the term reforming but you know um guiding them away from these paths of extremism and radicalization i'm going to use all the buzzwords tonight right so um, uh, and give them the opportunity to understand what Islam really teaches about these things, rather than, you know, some of the grooming that goes on. And, and, it, is, and it is grooming, let's be quite frank. Uh, there is a lot of grooming that does take place with many of the youth that certainly I deal with uh, when it comes to these types of issues. And these are our youth, man. We've got, to, we've got to be able to... And the sad thing is there's not enough people doing this, right? We've got Muslims who believe in this narrative, who start falling for this narrative, of violence and justifying it using Islam and the Quran uh, to cause bloodshed, like we've seen in recent times with in, in France and other Western countries, uh, and even Muslim countries, we've seen it, yeah? So what I want to do tonight is really unpack some of these things and put it to bed once and for all and put it out there so that these common misconceptions that non-Muslims have in particular about um, and, and the messages that are coming through, uh, being at, uh, this ter violent terrorism, being att uh, attributed to Islam um, in particular, uh, 
and and the objective tonight is I don't want to I don't want it to turn into some sort of what aboutism, right? I'm not really I'm really not into that sort of thing, but you know, it, but there will be some crossover, you know, like what we've seen happening unfold last night and uh, in Al Aqsa. There is no doubt connections and linkages there, right? So what we want to try and do is today is demonstrate reasonably, you know, and without doubt that Islam is free from the uh, from terrorism in the conventional terms of terrorism that people use, and that ter terrorism actually isn't in God's name, and show that Islam in particular uh, is actually a balanced way, not only a balanced way, but the solution to terrorism, I should say, right? So let's open up this discussion, Elias. Let's start yeah. with you. Let's let's have a bit of a, an open discussion. I've, I've 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 done a little bit of an introduction on what I really want to unpack in tonight's program. Um, what are your thoughts, bro? Let's start with what's happening. Well, you, you know, I, I want to begin with basically a, a statement. You know, and tonight is the twenty seventh night of Ramadan. For many people, they deem this to be the night of Laylatul Qadr. Although uh, we all know that it's on the odd nights, and it could be any of the ten nights. Yeah. of Ramadan, so there is no one particular night. But let's just work on the 27th night principle. Obviously there's lockdown, but on this night, in, in, in Masjid al-Haram tonight, it will be packed with 1.5 million people on one of the most sacred nights of the Islamic calendar. Okay? Yet despite that, and this whole Masjid, 1.5 million people praying together all night long, the Prophet ﷺ said, the life of a human being, and it's a human being, the life, the blood, and the honor, dhammahu, irduhu, okay, wamaluhu, all of these things are inviolable, cannot be violated. The sacredness of human life and the crime, Allah made it impermissible for the taking of a life. So I just want to begin with that because to establish this principle that on the holiest yeah. night of our whole calendar, at the holiest place for us, the most sacred place, the Haram, engaged in the ibadat of 1.5 million people in one space, yet the Prophet ﷺ made it that the human life, human dignity, and human protection of human people, human beings is more sacred than this, and also more sacred than the day of Yom al-Nahr, the day of sacrifice in the days of Dhul-Hijjah. So I just want to start off with that. The next point that's really important, uh, uh, Abu Tayyib, in this whole debate is this. We actually do not have an international definition of terrorism. Hmm. You would have thought a subject that was so important, <laughs> even, even the United Nations have 13 instruments, 13 instruments that they use to administer their, uh, their kind of, you could say, prosecution on, uh, on terrorism. They have 13 instruments. They have this definition. And, and basically the reason that there isn't an internationally defined definition of terrorism is, do you know why? Because most of the governments of the world would fall foul of it. Hmm. That's hmm. it. It's as simple as that. Because really, who makes the distinction between, okay, terrorism, freedom fighters, one day they're criminals, next day they're heads of state, Nelson Mandela, we all love him. And I'm going to touch on Nelson Mandela in a minute. Went from ANC terrorists to world statesmen. I, I, I met Martin McGuinness, the head of the military wing of the IRA, and then who was obviously deputy leader of the Northern Irish government, and he's passed away now. I met him personally, and I asked him about the IRA and everything, yeah? And, uh, you know, terrorism has gone on for thousands of years. Hiroshima, Nagasaki, 
the dropping of two atom bombs. How can this not be a terrorist incident? How can this not be a, you know, absolute, uh, like I said, war crime? Yet yeah, somehow an act it was, of terror, of course. It's an act of terror, of course it is. Not so that. really, and this is the interesting thing. How is it that the Christchurch killer, <clears throat> the Christchurch cowardly killer, mm. is a terrorist, but attacks on Aqsa, and, and the, the demolishing of mosques around the world. And let me make it clear to all places of worship that are violated. Okay, you know, we are consistent. This is the important point. Of we as Muslims are consistent for us or against us. So I want us to be absolutely, we don't play what if we, yeah? Okay, we take personal responsibility for the misdemeanors in our community as well, you know? And we don't turn a blind eye just because we say they did this, so we, no, no, we don't fall into that. Allah makes it very clear. The good deed and the evil deed are not equivalent. So repel evil with what is better. So the point here is this. Who makes the distinction? And this is the whole point. It is a profoundly politically driven decision. Uh, who defines what is a terrorist group? Who are terrorists? What is a terrorist attack? And, and really, international law is used, obviously, as a way to legitimate killing. You know, when we see extrajudicial killings, renditions, drone attacks, the list goes on and on. Of Where's the oversight? Where's the accountability? Where's the prosecutions? Where's the, the uh, repercussions for the collateral damage? All of this. So this is why there's no international. And this is why the media narrative is very, very clearly to create a bogeyman to create this construct, we call it, Chomsky called it manufactured consent. Post 9-11, basically terrorism became synonymous with the Muslim space. And unfortunately, a reactionary mindset in the Muslim space, it became self-fulfilling for them, when the reality of what we know is that terrorism is a thousands of year old phenomena, okay? It has been driven by, and even within our last hundred years, you look at the Tamil Tigers, you look at if you look at far right, far left, you look at fascist organizations, you look at the Nazis, you look at, you know, the Stern gang, you know, early Zionist groups who were responsible for the King David Hotel attack, which was pivotal in the English leaving English occupied Palestine. You know, all of these are all examples of what we call terrorism with its simplest definition, which is the use of violence in the pursuance of a political ideology against innocent others that's the simplest definition so when we use that the pursuance of violence no the, 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 the use of violence in the pursuance of an ideology against innocent others tell me no one is free mm -hmm. no Absolutely. state i have to say i mean the, the interesting thing Elias, is this yeah you know yeah. you've got the vast majority of terrorist attacks on the continent of europe is actually not by the muslims when you look at the research the vast majority, we're talking 90 plus percent of attacks on the continent are from separatist groups. You right? know, Europol produces every year. You know, Europol produce a report every year. And obviously, I, I, I read that report and disseminate that report. And Europol's report makes it absolutely clear that the vast majority of European terrorism related activity is ethno separatist nationalist groups arise yeah. in the far right. And of course, there is what we call for better, you know, Islamist. And we use the term Islamism because it's very difficult. I don't even like to use it. I call them, uh, you know, we just we have the term. And I want to make it very clear. 
we can get caught up in all these definitions and all this discourse, but mm. let's be actually clear. In Islam, we have a clear concept of what irhab is, terrorism is, and yeah. who the Khawarij are. Yeah. The Khawarij were the first terrorists in Islam. They will be, the Prophet said, emerging every time. They use and manipulate the current political context and use Islam for their own agenda to create insurgents, to create revolution, to create instability, to create rebellion. We see them today. The Prophet made it very clear. Yeah, Kalbana, dogs of the hellfire. Wherever you see them, he said, eliminate them. So Islam is very, very firm on this in having its definition and, and its means for eradication. That's why we talk about this subject, because we, we yeah. do that. And we recognize very, very clearly the role of what we call non-legitimate, non-state players. I'm not going to get too technical in these definitions, but it's important for us to actually recognize these concepts and ideas absolutely because because you know whenever i have these discussions with policymakers, i say look stop using these terms we have a clear concept the khawarij when yeah. you use the yeah. term khawariji and khawarij ideologies and khawarij traits and characteristics and we see this we see this happening and we have to be honest you know isis is and and i and i said this in 2011 i was alone in saying this and i was really vilified by lots of people and had death threats ISIS were Khawarij through and through. Yeah. Anyone who has a basic understanding of the, the Khawarij traits recognize that ISIS were complete what we call usurpers. Okay, They came and they just self-styled gangster warlords using Islam for their own particular agenda and then manipulating the naive, idealistic, reactionary masses of the Muslims yeah, that this was legitimate and of course they hijack Islam and they hijack the symbols of Islam mm -hmm. and they twist and distort the Quran. The Prophet tells them just a final point. He says yeah. they recite the Quran. He made it so the definition is brilliant. They recite the Quran, it does not pass their lips. Yani they twist and distort the verses of the Quran for their own political agenda. Mm -hmm. And the and the innocent, naive, reactionary masses who are disaffected and dispossessed fall into their trap, you know, and I've seen it for 30 years. I've seen this. I've seen the manipulation. I've been on the front line of it. And, you know, I don't talk about this work because I do it under the radar, really. I don't really talk much about yeah, it. Likewise. Yeah, likewise. Yeah. I'm, I'm I mean, look, there's an important point. I'm going to bring up the Rahman in this conversation in a second, yeah, because he is a, a specialist in this field. I don't know how much he wants me to, to, to tell about this, but I'll let him, I'll let him do that. But, you know, with regards to the research and the policies and things like that, Abdurrahman, I'm really keen to hear from, from him on this. But just before that, I want to just mention something here. that just picked up what you were saying there. You know, language is so important, right? The words that people use is very, very important because that feeds into perceptions and that feeds into the narrative. So even terms like, and, I, and, I, and I'll reject this when I hear it, you know, when they say Islamic terror, what are you talking about, Islamic terror mm. or Islamic terrorism? What are you on? A, even the term Islamist, I'm not a fan of, right? It's just yeah. these are new terms, right? These are very, very relatively new terms. Because why? Because what you're doing automatically in the, in the psychology of it, in the psyche of people, you're associating Islam with terrorism. You're associating yeah. Islam with extremism. And this we have to continuously speak out against because this is not the way that we um you know you know the, the the portrayal of things the way that they, they come across so that's what i'm saying language is so important what kind of language i mean even last night look at what the the way that the the news will portray it 
clashes. This wasn't a clash. It, it, was, wasn't, a clash. it was an assault. This was a straight-up terrorist assault on a group of innocent worshippers in a mosque, in a place of worship. Mm. That's what this was. It wasn't yeah. clashes. There was no clash yeah. about it, right? Yeah. Um, so let me bring Abdurrahman into this conversation a little bit, bro. Yeah, you, you Give us a little bit about, because I know, um, you know, I've seen some of the work that you do. And and again, I don't know how much of this you want to you want to talk about now. But uh, what's your thoughts on on some of the things that we've just been mentioning? Okay, Bismillah. Um, yeah, the the point that you just finished on about this the language is is very important. Um, in reference to Al Aqsa, it was a violent sacrilege, you know. But by any standard of of, of the the definition. Um, it's interesting, Sheikh Elias mentioned there was 13 attempted prescriptions or, or, or ways to codify terrorism. SubhanAllah, over half a millennium ago, we had 13 precise definitions of jihad by uh, Imam Ibn al-Qayyim. And each and every one of these was free from uh, oppression. It had its prerequisites, uh, what is known as shurud. Uh, principles, duabit, and applied precepts or qawaid. So we had all this and it wasn't done for the sake of PR. When the when these discussions of jihad, which is essentially the antith antithesis uh, to terrorism, when these were codified and explained and laid out by the scholars of Islam, Islam was in the ascendancy. In other words, if Muslims wanted to be terroristic, quote-unquote, and wipe out civilian populations, desecrate their churches, their synagogues, their temples, uh, enslave uh, free men and women, and so on and so forth, no one could have done anything about it. And not only could they not have done anything about it, that was the norm of most empires anywhere outside of Islam. This is what they did. You'd go, you'd rape and pillage, sack a city, uh, you know, ransom those you want to do, and, and whatever, do whatever you can, and wipe out those who had a different uh, belief system to you. Muslims didn't do that, of course. The oldest surviving churches, oldest surviving synagogues, even oldest surviving Buddhist temples are actually in Muslim countries. Uh, had the companions wanted to, they could have leveled them all, but they made a point to leave these alone because this is not from our understanding of, of uh, uh, how we interact with, quote-unquote, the other. Uh, it was mentioned also about this, you know, how do you define you know, what a terrorist is versus a freedom fighter. There's a, an interesting um, uh, 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 dialogue that happened. I'm going to paraphrase. I haven't memorized it, of course, between Alexander the Great and a bandit, a highwayman. So he caught this highwayman and he said, why do you steal? And he said, well, uh, you know, and why do you, you know, it's basically a, a, a uh, in today's terms, you'd be armed, an armed robber. So he said, look, I kill one person. This is what he said to the emperor, the conqueror. And I'm a thief. I get called a thief. You kill a million people and you're a conqueror. <laughs> so it's a matter of scale. So what we see in Al-Aqsa is, is the, the victor or the ones who have the power, they get to frame the narrative. But we can't as Muslims and we shouldn't allow ourselves to fall into that because Islam is not like any other religion or way of life. It's We believe it's the truth divinely revealed. As such, we don't have to and we shouldn't and we should resist falling into the trap of playing to someone else's playing someone else's fiddle we define terms mm -hmm. and frame discussions according to how they are beneficial uh, and uh, speak to the truth of what we believe so for example this issue and and uh, both of you mentioned this 
uh, with the Khwarij, it's absolutely clear. The Prophet mentioned there'd be 70, 73 sects, divisions, fractures from the Muslim Ummah. And so many of the scholars have named who these sects are. Interestingly, only, and, and one of them, of course, would, would be rightly guided and they would, uh, they would be worthy of entering paradise, provided they're true to the, those principles. And the rest, inshallah, if they're still Muslims, they would be forgiven uh, eventually. But anyway, out of these 72 damned sects, damned to the hellfire, mm. only one was earmarked for liquidation. The Prophet never said, and as for this sect or the people who reject uh, my sunnah or those who deny Qadr, the divine decree, kill them. And ex He never said this, except for the group that the Sheikh mentioned, uh, the Khwarij, because of their, 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 their ideology, ideology crosses over into the real world. It harms the common man, woman, Muslim and non-Muslim. And so that's why we have been consistent. We didn't wait till it was sexy to speak out against uh, ter terroristic actions and violence and bombing and oppression. It was always part of our religion. And mm -hmm. this was the first sect that was condemned upon the tongue of the Prophet Sussan. Um, uh, then, then there's also this this um, issue of again in terms of framing. Now, you often we often get almost compelled to say, "Well, is Islam a peaceful religion or is mm -hmm. it a violent religion?" Mm -hmm. And we fall into this trap. Um, if you were to answer yes or no to this question, if we were to answer yes or no, we'd be doing a disservice. We'd be either lying or denying. It's like asking if someone asks ask us. Uh, do you enjoy beating your mother more than your father? How can you answer that with a yes or no? If you say yes, then it means that you, uh, you're agreeing that you beat your mother. If you say no, oh, so you enjoy beating your father more than, you know, it's a trap. This is not, this is not a question. It's a question we, we should accept because this has been framed uh, to almost stifle, stifle legitimate uh, facing off against oppression. So, mm. If we were to ask if anyone, just anyone on the street, name five from popular culture, from popular fiction, name five heroes that come to mind. I'll ask you guys, just name five heroes, top of your head, from popular culture, fiction, Hollywood, Bollywood, whatever, name five heroes, just off the top of your head, or three. Winston Churchill, go on. Winston Churchill. <laughs> I, was, I, was thinking, I was thinking superheroes, but go on. Oh, you're talking about superheroes. <laughs> well, no, it superheroes. could be any, it could be any. Not even Winston, but yeah. Okay, well, let's have two more. Batman, Batman, Batman is an anti-hero. Anti yeah, absolutely. Anti okay, one more. We got Winston, we got Batman, one more. The Punisher. The Punisher. Okay, great. And if we, and these questions are, uh, I mean, these answers are correct. What defines these people is their, essentially, if I may be frank, is their ability to kick ass. Yeah. They defeated people through violence. If we were to name, go through the list of heroes, even yeah. your Harry Potters, your Optimus Primes, uh, you know, your Marvel DC, you mentioned, uh, uh, you know, uh, the, the um, uh, Winston and any, any of these great leaders in history from whichever nation, what defined them was how they acted against the enemy. Were they violent? Of course it's, they were. It's that hero, hero villain, uh, hero versus villain, the Autobots versus Decepticons, right? Uh, one, is, exactly. one is good, one is bad. That's yes. essentially what you're talking about here. Well, but the point I'm making is, is, is a bit more, more subtle than that. What defines them is their ability to inflict pain and punishment. Or that's, mm. what, that's what made them success. Every superhero is a superpower. What does he do with the superpower? Do they go and build bridges and orphanages? No, they beat up the bad guy. So in the same sense, if someone asks us, is Islam peaceful or violent? We'll say that's a false 
a category fallacy. The question you should be asking is, is Islam heroic or villainous? We is, would it say, is, it, is it just or unjust as well? Is it just or unjust? Does it empower or disempower? Does exactly. it oppress or does it liberate? These yeah. are uh, actually Edward Said, he put it like this. These are the real axes on which we judge. And the first one is just the justness of the war. This is a really important principle by which we judge it and how the, the victors behave. So, but you're right. You know, it's interesting, Abdurrahman, what you're saying is that the history of man is a history of violence, which is really interesting. And it's the history of the victor against the vanquished will then define how kind of reality is. And right, this is not the Islamic narrative. This is really important to realize. This is not the way. And in the same way, you know, I think Muslims react on one hand and, and we have to realize we have to be upon wasitiya in all matters. So we've got one group of people who's flipped to the other way of Dar al-Harb and go into the Irhab narrative. Because on the other flip side, yeah, is Islam is a religion of peace. We, and I have to say, we are not pacifists. I am not a pacifist. I believe in just war. I believe in, in, in jihad based upon the, the rigid and the strict principles that are prescribed within Islam, which govern it, which ensure that it's done under a legitimate authority, under a legitimate legal apparatus, with a legitimate army, with legitimate declarations of war, all of these principles. And there are many, many other principles beside, yeah? And actually, these principles actually also coincide with international law as well, yeah? So, of course, you know, I don't want to flip to the other side. You know, when the Muslims came into Gibraltar, from, uh, uh, from North Africa, the Moors uh, and, uh, you know, what is it, Tariq bin Ziyad crossed from North Africa into Spain by the invitation of the oppressed Jewish minorities in Andalus. And he came in there to liberate them. And that's why the Jews of Andalus had a safe haven. And even when they talk about it today, they say we were treated by the king of Morocco with security. He would, they give us a man, uh, asylum, and they were protected as being under the protection of the Muslims. And never, likewise in the Ottoman Empire, the Muslim world provided safe haven and sanctuary for, for Jews and many other minorities who were fleeing it. And then they entered into Andalus. So under, mm -hmm. under, under these very, very, you know, robust and, uh, you know, clear principles that, that we have. So you're absolutely right. You know, you know, I think what we need to do is, is lay out. And this is one of the main ways I, I think we educate a whole generation so they don't fall into what I call a reactionary mindset, which is yeah. torn between the two extremes of passivism and then aggression. It's the wasitiya, the middle path of saying, look, this is our tradition. These are the rules. These are the regulations. This is how it's been administered by just Islamic governments over the last 1400 years. And through this, we are more likely to achieve the objective of just war. And when these principles are not observed, then you see a corruption. You see fasad. You know, this is the whole point. You see the facade, the verse in the Quran, in is based on these principles. Yeah, Allah enjoins justice al-ihsan with the qurba to those people around you and avoid the facade, the fitna, the chaos, the confusion that emerges from it. So jihad within Islam. The jihad of kital of fighting is governed by so many principles and this is another really important, is the realm of the government, not of the ordinary people. This is a very important principle that we have failed to understand and has uh, tragically opened the door towards this self-styled vigilante gangster Islam, gangsterism. 
okay, manipulated by Khwarijji warlords, where these 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 individuals who are so reactionary get pulled into that because they fail to understand a very simple principle. This is the realm of governments, okay, of state operators. It was never a realm of the ordinary person. If the ordinary person wants to be engaged in it, let them join a legitimate legal army. That's the way that they engage it. And they do this through, as, he, as the Prophet said, under the banner of the Imam. Hmm. This is the, one of the most important things that distinguishes the correct Islamic observance of this matter against the Khwarijat corruption of this matter. Is It's under the legitimate Imam, Ulil Amr, the one who is in authority. And these principles, I'm afraid, you know, no one is teaching these principles. So unfortunately, our young people, they go onto the online space. They are manipulated and controlled by an emotive, compelling uh, narrative. But what's happening at the moment is just purely emotive. And, you know, I have to say, we have to get away from just emotionally reacting. It's terrible. Mm, it's it terrible is. what's going on. And, and but, even, but, even, within, yeah. even within the community, bro, I mean, you find that there is this level of um, ignorance on how to deal with it as well. Having that, we're talking about, you know, leaders within our communities as well, right? And there's a level of fear. I mean, I'm not scared to talk about jihad. I'm not scared to talk about terrorism. And as you know, we do a lot of sort of workshops, um, you know, Islamic programs, myth-busting sessions to non-Muslims. Um, and we even give da'wah to the far right when we, we deal with some of these common questions that are asked all the time from us, Right. And as you said, look, we're not pacifists. We're not going to shy away from our religion. We're not going to water it down. We're going to use hikmah when we explain these things. And there's some comments here. There's a comment by Ruth here. I'm just going to read this one up because I think this is important on why we're having this conversation today. Uh, it says, brothers and sisters, please like and share this live podcast. Lots and lots of others really need to hear this. And the reason why we're having this conversation is for the Muslims who are listening to this now, that you become empowered and know how to answer these questions when you ask them, right? So, for example, we've got, you know, um, uh, new Muslims, when they become Muslim, their families, the first thing that they do, this is, this is genuine, yeah? a lot of new Muslims, when I deal with them, well, the first things is their families freak out and they say, you know, oh, he's become a terrorist or she's become, you know, an extremist or whatever, right? And that new Muslim needs support on how to explain these things to their non-Muslim families, right? You've got Muslim youth who are, are, are surrounded by these doubts. How are, they, how are they going to answer it and know the difference between what is what Islam actually teaches about these concepts and what they're being told by others who may be manipulating, like you, like you already said. Um, and there's a lot of comments here about you know ISIS and stuff like that. We're gonna we're gonna tackle them. Don't worry, guys. We're gonna tackle them. Let's let me go. Let me go to you know. Do some do these top ten questions that are asked by non-Muslims, guys? Right? I'm going to pose the question to you both. Give me your answers to it, and then we can have a bit more detailed discussion um, uh, after the ten questions have been answered. Uh, so let's do some quick-fire question and answer okay. on uh -huh. the top ten questions that are asked, and I want you to just answer them as succinctly as possible. I'm just quickly check in the comments in case there's anything else. Um, that I've missed out before I go on to that. Yeah, that's fine. So question number one, guys, yeah? The, and remember, these are the top 10 questions that I get asked on a regular basis. And I'll give you my answers if they're different to yours anyway, yeah? So question number one, is Islam an inherently violent religion? Okay, absolutely not. Uh, uh, you know, that's it. If we look at 
Islam over a 23-year period, we see that the reality is this, this for the vast majority of it, it is a peaceful uh, existence. But I want to give one event which kind of sums it all up. Okay, in the sixth year of the Medina period, which is the, you know, which was obviously, you know, let me talk about 19 years into the prophecy of the Prophet Sallallahu 10,000 people came to Medina, it's called the Battle of Ahzab, to, to destroy everyone in Medina, to eradicate every single life in the Medina, and the Prophet and his companions were able to defend themselves. All the confederate of all of the Arab armies okay, came to extinguish every single Muslim life. Then two years, uh, yes, two years after that period, the Prophet then marched upon Mecca, a place from which he had been cast out. He ran as a refugee. He was he's a place where the people who tortured him, abused him, made him suffer for 20 years were. He then returned to Mecca with an army of 10,000. And he came into Mecca with the army of 10,000 and he forgave everybody. No retribution. Yes, there were some individuals who were killed, who chose to come out and attack the Muslim army and were war criminals. Uh, and they went through a judicial process around that. But we're talking then less than 10 people there in a city of tens of thousands. The Prophet came back with an army of 10,000. This is the first occasion in the whole history, and you can do your own research, in the whole history of mankind where we have what we call a peace and reconciliation process on this level. Apartheid, Northern Ireland, all these other places came much later on. When I do conflict resolution work, I actually challenge people, tell me the first example of that. Now, if Islam was inherently violent and the Prophet had this opportunity to come back to his torturers, to the ones who killed his companions, to the ones who had made his life difficult and miserable, had been his adversaries all the way through this 20-year period, the tables are turned then you would see that there would have been bloodshed on a scale unimaginable, especially when just, like I said, just years before they came to extinguish. But no, so this is just one example. And we could give so many other examples of this, not just in the time of the Prophet, but then throughout Islamic history of how Muslims have coexisted. And if you look at the lands of, you know, the lands of Sham, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, where we are now, you know, multi-faith communities, multi-racial communities have existed, coexisted co with the Muslims for a thousand plus years, you know, and that shows, you know, the preservation of their places of worship, the protection of them under the, you know, their the, the rights under Muslim rule has existed. So this is the reality. This is the absolute reality. And I don't say this, you know, it's, you know, people like, you know, even well, let me let me bring up the quote here from Bernard Lewis. Bernard Lewis, as anyone knows, is a historian who is not the most pro-Islamic one. And he goes, in Lewis's view, by now the widespread terrorism practice of suicide bombing is a development of the 20th century with no antecedents in Islamic history and no justification in terms of Islamic theology or tradition. He further comments, the fanatical warrior offering his victims the choice of the Quran or the sword is not only untrue, it is impossible. And that generally speaking, Muslim tolerance of unbelievers was far better than anything available in Christendom until the rise of secularism in the 17th century. And that's from Bernard Lewis 
in his book Islam and the and the Religion of People, uh, 2008. And anyone knows Bernard Lewis. Bernard Lewis is is not an Islamic supporter by any means. Yeah, he's yeah, quite exactly. critical and quite an adversarial writer upon Islam. But even let me bring up the Rahman. In, let me bring up the Rahman into this one as well. I think he's got some good insight into this. By the way, that wasn't quick fire, Elias. Yeah, so I'm going to pull you up on that right. one. Next time I'll be quick fire. <laughs> okay, Abdurrahman, go for it, bro. Uh, to, to add to that, again, I would I would push back against this question. I, I would say that there's an agenda behind this question. Often there is an agenda behind it. Um, what do they What do they want from us? That's why I would double down on on ask them. Ask us: Islam heroic, or is it villainous? Because a hero will help an old lady cross the road. A hero will help put food on the table. But he would also put a beat down on a bully when required. Allah says in the Quran, "Kutib and." Going back to what you said about sometimes the, the mosques uh, and the mom don't want to speak about this. What does that do? It drives the youth to these dark, the dark web or whoever yeah. will answer these questions. And they'll say, but Allah says in the Quran, for example, fighting has been prescribed for you. Fighting, killing, warfare has been prescribed for you, but you dislike it. So they will take these verses out of context and they say, see, these people are lying against Allah. They're rejecting a part of the religion. Of course, there's we modify these verses with their context. For, and on this one, uh, another verse would say, and this helps generally uh, uh, give a, a fuller context to the all of the verses about jihad. And if they withdraw from you, meaning the enemy, and fight not against you, they don't fight you, but rather they offer you peace, then Allah has not given you any pretext against them. Meaning if those who are not from your religion, not of you, who have been hostile to you, currently fighting you, but now they say, well, look, we're not going to fight. Let's have peace. You have no right to attack them thereafter. So this, so that's why I would push back against this question. Said We, we believe in heroism. We believe, as Sheikh Ilyas said, in justice. Justice sometimes requires us to speak out so that we don't allow someone to come into uh, the mosque, uh, one of the sacred uh, mosques on the most sacred night, potentially, of the uh, entire year. Uh, equal potentially to uh, uh, a thousand months and allow us to beat us over the head and say, well, you know, we're all about peace here. So no, we will stand up against justice provided we have, as the Sheikh said, we have those prerequisites, the ability to defend ourselves. We have a structure, the legitimate uh, uh, imam and, and his uh, uh, oper operate, operations, uh, op uh, operations of state, apparatus of state, sorry, state apparatus, in, in order for us to guaranteed beyond reasonable doubt a victory because if it's going to lead to more bloodshed then we are not suicidal this is a again something driven by hollywood hollywood we will fight till we die that's not an islamic concept that's not heroism that's stupidity you you preserve life at any cost why did the prophet go to uh, abyssinia and uh, or send some of his companions to abyssinia was uh, why didn't he fight till the death was he a coward no because Saving the life is paramount. Having peace is paramount. If you can co coexist with those who are not like you, different from you, uh, even despise you, do so. Make them, bring them into your fold. They are your brothers and sisters in humanity. Invite them to the truth. There's even ayah subhanAllah that in the middle of the jihad, in the middle of the war that was raging between the companions under the under the, the leadership of the Prophet and the enemies who persecuted them, they said, if one of the enemy wants safe passage, granted to him this is a man who's a combatant he's trying to kill you but if he wants safe passage away from the battlefield give him that safe passage guard him out of that uh, theater so that he may hear the word of allah meaning what our whole purpose our raison d'etre 
Uh, the reason for being is to have people listen to the word of Allah. That's it. If they allow us to do that, we, we can and we will and we live in peace with everyone. Hmm. There's a comment here from Ruth. She's, she's come back with a comment here. My mother initially asked me, and this is linked to this. Yeah, My mother initially asked me when she reverted to, to Islam, I wish you had joined a peaceful religion like Buddhism. Uh, and this this is what I'm talking about here. This is why we're doing this program, right? One Tell that to the Rohingya. I then talked to her about the plight of the Rohingya, and mashallah, she has since visited the masjid, right? So, yeah, absolutely, you know. Um, uh, right, let me see if any other questions with regards, I mean, answers. Here's a couple of comments here. Uh, one man's terrorism, another man's fight for freedom. It's a subjective exercise. Uh, okay, we'll come back to that. Right, next question, guys. Yeah, it's not a subjective exercise for us. We have clear definitions, so let's be absolutely yeah. clear. Yes, you know, like what, exactly. uh, on the international scale, they deliberately create the ambiguity in order to support certain things via proxy wars and when it suits their agenda, and then to criminalize others. Yeah, so no, that's where the subjectivity and the ambiguity is. But there's no ambiguity in Islam. This. Hmm. Okay. Jazakallah khair. <clears throat> Okay, next question, guys. Yeah, number two, we've got ten questions to get through, right? So, number two, be very quick. Does the Quran promote terrorism? No, it does not promote terrorism. Quite simply, that it promotes, as I began right at the beginning, it promotes the sanctity of all human life. The verse in the Quran is very clear: if you kill one person, you kill the whole of humanity. That's how sacred human life is. And the verse in the Quran, which is the first verse, is called Ayat al-Dafullah, and it establishes that. Jihad is permitted for those people who are expelled from their homes uh, uh, and say, our Lord, uh, and had there been, anyway, it talks about, it, had not people come to their defense, then the churches and the synagogues and the mosque would all be destroyed. So it talks about the fact that this is actually a responsibility we have for all of humanity. Good. Um, Abdurrahman, anything to add? Yeah, the, the closest uh, example of terrorism at the in the lifetime of the Prophet uh, is where a, a group of shepherds escorted some of the companions and they under false pre, pre, pretext. And during them taking these, these believers, they actually killed them and they stole their cattle. So it was kind of banditry, uh, mm -hmm. what's known as hiraba, similar to the word irhab, which means terrorism. And the strictest punishment, the most, let's say, dare we say, brutal punishment in the Quran that Allah has ever revealed yeah. is for this act of uh, if you like, proto-terrorism. And that is, this is the verse of crucifixion, amputation from opposite sides, because it was such an evil act that these people did. So the punishment for terrorism, or if you want to say proto-terrorism, the, the thing that looked like terrorism, i.e. attacking harmless, innocent civilians uh, for a material gain, was uh, was revealed for that, was, this, uh, was the most brutal of all capital punishments, of course, at the discretion of the government, not for any of us, or any any vigilantism to, to take into account. So absolutely not. It's, uh, the Quran uniquely identifies terrorism, uses the synonyms for terrorism, which are still used today by the scholars of Islam, and condemns it and puts a serious capital uh, penalty upon those who engage in terrorism. Brilliant, brilliant. Okay, there's a comment here. I like this comment, right? I want to read this one out. Jassim says, if Islam is based on violence... Sorry, where's it gone? Um... There wouldn't be a modern Europe now and America were still inhabited by the natives, yeah? <laughs> um, what is it? Red says here, I'm terrorized when they say you believe in a book that wants us dead. 
Well yeah, done, just Ray. to give you an idea of how illogical this whole view is, yeah, and this exactly. view that is espoused by certain of the individuals that you mentioned earlier on, and how totally irrational and illogical it is. If it says in the Quran, kill them wherever they are. And as we know, every verse in the Quran we call Asbab al-Nazul has a particular specific context that is clear, clarified to us by legitimate scholarship, which has been consistent over 1400 years. Now the point is, if, if that verse was in order to 1.6 billion Muslims, believe me, there would be a serious problem. problem. But it's not. And actually, the number of people who engage in this kind of extreme behavior, I've worked out the figure it is this amount on a global level, 0.000001% of Muslims. Still, it's bad, but you know that. But that's just goes to show you if it was this serious, then 1.6 billion Muslims would be activated by that verse. And yet, yet we are not. What does that show you? is that we recognize a 1400 year tradition of Islamic principles and scholarship, which is clearly clarified to the 99.99% of Muslims out there that this is wrong. Yeah, good. Okay. Um, question number three, I think this is going to be a bit of a, it's going to need a bit more clarification. So a little bit more time for this one. Is jihad and terrorism the same thing? I think we've all already clarified that. No, it's not. The term jihad, let me make it very clear. The term jihad, okay, doesn't necessarily, doesn't mean fighting. Qital is obviously fighting and jihad has a form which is obviously taking up arms. So this is why the term jihad is such a powerful and important concept for us that we cannot allow to be hijacked and we have to reclaim it under the correct understanding of Islam. And so in no way, shape or form does it have any indication. So as we know, the hadith, which is well known, Okay, and it's supported by Athar and about the jihad against our nafs. Okay, and I remember when we were young, we would dismiss this, but it's 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 established as a clear proof. And it's absolutely true. This whole month we are making jihad against our own self, our own desires, our own ego, our own self-importance, our own base kind of needs and desires to, to, to achieve a better version of ourselves. And so, yes, jihad, it takes many, many forms. Jihad bi lisanihi, of the tongue speaking a word of truth. Be jihad bi kalbihi, of the heart hating things, yeah. Bi yadihi, with the hand, of course, yeah, to remove harmful and difficult things. Jihad with the pen, to write against, you know, evil ideas and concepts. So that it has many forms. But, you know, when you and I talk about jihad, I talk about my jihad, which is on mental health, which is to strive, yeah, to ensure that we, you know, my struggle, my jihad, is to promote better health, mental health in our community. That's my struggle that I've taken upon myself to do so. So let us make an absolute clear. We do not want the term jihad, jihad to become hijacked by an extremist narrative that is being promoted again by a media narrative and, a, and an Islamophobic narrative, yeah, which obviously has made it synonymous. And that's why Muslims equally do not fall into the trap of this singular definition of what jihad is but to recognize the complexity of it. And the reason people fall into that, as I said at the beginning, is because of that ignorance, that they don't know that the whole matters of warfare and bearing arms is actually the realm of the state under the clear rules and principles of governance. And it is not a realm for the ordinary people. And unfortunately, the ordinary people have got into a matter that does not concern them because and look, I, I, we know it because, you know, really we have a, for ever, ever, you know, for the last hundred years, we've been in this very reactionary mode. And, you know, the emotive call for jihad against imperialism and the occupation of Muslim lands and all of this is a very, very powerful and emotive narrative that really captures the disaffected mindset. 
and they fall into this particular trap. So no, absolutely. This is why this is so important to reclaim the concept of jihad, to reclaim it and to give the correct understanding upon the Quran and Sunnah on this matter. Good. Even, yeah, even, even if we don't actually look at the scriptural context of any of these verses of jihad, and we just look at the, and just use common sense, or what we should call uncommon sense nowadays. For example, the verse was mentioned, uh, so kill them wherever you find them. Yeah. Okay, this was revealed in Medina. Mm -hmm. Medina had a constitution, which was uh, a part of, which was one ummah, one nation, one polity, including Muslims, Jews, and pagans, and the odd Christian who would travel here and there. But generally, Muslims, Jews, pagans. So, how did they not? Why did they not kill those who were right next to them? It's not. It's not difficult to find your neighbor. The Prophet had a neighbor who was a Jewess. Why did he not kill her? Why did he not slaughter all the Jews in Medina? You know, they were in the ascendancy. They had power. As we said, not only did they have power, but in those days, it was considered the norm to wipe out those who differed with you, didn't look like you, didn't smell like you, certainly were a different religion than you. You could wipe them out and it would have been absolutely normal. We, we can even reference the Bible in, in some of this kind of literature. So for, even without looking at the context of these verses, just look at the, the, the common sense. Why did that not happen? Clearly, this tells us this verse meant other than, or it had a context other than what was applied. We have the verse in the Quran revealed in Makkah. Allah orders the Prophet, don't obey the disbelievers. Don't accept what they're commanding you, but make a mighty jihad against them. Make a great jihad. We say Allah Akbar, same root, Akbar, Kabir. Make a great jihad against them in Makkah. So why did the Prophet not harm anyone in Makkah whilst he was in Makkah neither he nor his companions why didn't they lynch anyone when this verse was revealed clearly it meant something other than jihad of the sword um, and the, the, the indication is with the pronoun if we look into the, the, the wording make a jihad with it against them the it refers to the previous verse talks about the Quran how do you make jihad with the Quran against someone you don't smack someone around the face with it you <laughs> preach its ethics its morals it's 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 stories. Uh, it uh, it talks about the hereafter. Uh, how to how to uh, a man may be better and get uh, connect with his Lord, his Creator. That's jihad of the Quran. So clearly, even without looking at the actual textual context, just common sense tells us that these verses had a meaning. It, it tells us that jihad had a meaning other than strictly uh, jihad of the sword. Not only that, if I may very briefly, there's a misconception amongst many Muslims. They think that these two realms of jihad are mutually exclusive. It's either jihad of the soul or it's jihad of the sword. This is incorrect. In fact, jihad of the soul or jihad of the nafs, as Sheikh Aliya said, underpins and is the foundation which must be present for the other jihad. As soon as the jihad of the nafs disappears, the other jihad in a, in a, a, a competitive jihad becomes null and void because you must constantly be striving against your soul why am I doing this? Is to is to put uh, is to uh, fight against oppression in order that truth may become uh, prevalent, uh, in order that Allah's word may become most high, in order that injustice may be repelled, uh, that I may subdue, subdue my ego, that I may uh, go, grow closer to my Lord. If that underpinning jihad of the nafs is absent, the other jihad becomes irrelevant, and that underpinning foundational jihad of the nafs. We must do regardless of which state we're in. And I, what I mean by state is a political state or, or, uh, or uh, uh, the human psychological condition. We must always, no matter what abilities, what means we have, we must constantly be making that jihad of the nafs. And only should Allah bless us with a state, 
that is just and the emir, the imam, commands us to go forth and, and do what needs to be done, then we apply the second layer of jihad. But otherwise, the first foundational jihad of the soul is always there. It's not mutually exclusive, rather it's foundational. Marshall, excellent. That's, that's a and, very, very important point. I just want to add quickly on this as well. Look, we always refer, as Muslims, we refer back to the time of the Prophet we believe this is the greatest generation, his generation, the companions, and then the generations that followed after that. And they are the ones who truly preserve the core principles of not just Islamic belief and practice, but obviously all of these key sciences, including the science of, of jihad. Concepts, yeah. So, so what this means is that throughout the 1400 years of Islamic history, of course, we have to recognize that various Muslim governments, regimes, uh, empires over 1400 years, unfortunately, have transgressed the prophetic way and sometimes have used Islam for their own agenda. OK, and I think it's very honest. We have to have a very honest discourse about this because we make a distinction between what Muslims have done and what Islam actually teaches, which is sometimes often not very much the same. And in particular, my core responsibility is to protect with, to the utmost extent, the integrity of Islam based on the prophetic way and not defend the actions of Muslims who went against that way because the way of Islam is just and that makes it very, very clear. We are just whether it's for us or against us and we show justice even to, you know, do not let your hatred of a people make you do injustice to them. So I think this is an important realize where these two things become mm -hmm. conflated. And sometimes Muslims fall into a bit of a trap, I feel, of defending in, indefensible acts. If some Muslim has done something bad, we have a higher moral standard in condemning them for that action. Because our number one objective is not to protect an individual Muslim's indiscre indiscretion, but protect the integrity of our beautiful religion. Okay, good. I was going to ask this question later on, but I'm going to, I'm going to push it up the order a little bit because we mm -hmm. start talking about it. And that is, if it's not allowed in Islam, as in terrorism, it's not allowed in Islam, then why do some Muslims do it in the name of Islam? And why do some Muslims become extreme and radicalized? I know it's a bit of, a, that's a topic in and of itself, but in a more succinct way, how would you answer that? I think the Prophet made it very clear when he described the, the, the Khwarish. He described them mostly as young people. He described them as young, foolish, that they recited the Quran, they didn't pass their lips. And the, the simple, again, uh, description he gave was that they were the people, when, when Ibn Abbas, one of the great companions of the Prophet, wanted to give back to them, is that I have come from the people to whom the Quran was revealed, Shahidu Tanzim, wa Shahidu min Hadi Rasulihil Karim. They were the ones who witnessed the guidance and learned the guidance of this Quran from the Prophet to a group of people, and none of you are amongst them. So this is the reason why they are naive. They are idealistic, they are disaffected, they are reactionary, they are confused. And when you look at most of them, and I actually have worked with in the last 10 years with 50 individuals who've been convicted and not a single one of them. Okay, believe me, you, you would be shocked. You know, we have people reading books, Islam for Dummies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, this is not a joke. That's the example that I give. I give the exact same example. And there was another example, Abu Tayyib, that I had of a guy who'd never even read the Quran in English until he went to prison. Okay, hmm. so I'm afraid this shows the exactly the definition of the Prophet. And a lot of this fitna occurred in the time of what we call the Qur'a. 
and I'm going to come on to this here, which was much later after the Prophet ﷺ, when a group of people gained notoriety for their recitation of the Qur'an. So people thought, oh, these people must be scholars. They were not scholars. They had the recitation of the Qur'an. And then you, people almost, like I said, they, you know, kind of latched onto them and they left what we call legitimate Islamic scholarship. Okay, so this is the real reason why we have these very disaffected individuals. And again, the percentage of them, let us look at the percentage of them. It is a minuscule percentage, let us be aware. I've worked it out across European countries, the numbers of individuals who actually get involved in this direct action. There may be a group of people who might have sympathies, but the actual ones are minuscule, 0.000001%. Okay. And so let us not say that this is the predominant narrative. The predominant narrative within Islam is that the vast majority of Muslims know what is right, know what is wrong, even if they are jahil or ignorant of these matters. And for 1400 years, we have an ijma, we have a consistency in Islamic scholar that have interpreted the 147 verses in the Quran in relation to jihad in the same way. And it's only those who transgress and it exposes their transgression who have perverted and corrupted this. I agree, and I think from from some from some of the work that I've that I've seen and from yourself and others, one of the things that I've noticed is that a lot of the to, and in, in order to answer this question, we have to look at another couple of aspects as well. On top of what you've said, just to build upon what you've said there. Why do some Muslims do it? Why do some young Muslims in particular go down this path? Well, one of it is definitely I would ha I would have to say it's ignorance of the of the basics of the religion, basics of Islam. That's for sure from some of the people that I've been you know talking to. Uh, secondly, emotions, right? Emotions get the better of people, right? And we've seen this in some of the the discourse and some of the things that that have been said by those who've been even convicted. You know, we just see what's going on in Muslim lands and we wanted to do something, right? And this something is where the problem comes because they don't know what that something should be in many cases, right? And they, then when they when they do get groomed, when they get these other ideas by other people or even manipulated, then that something can become a violent something. So I think this is another aspect that we need to definitely consider. And, uh, okay, and think before, about. before the comes, I'll give you an example. I was talking to two young brothers with this mindset. And of course, you want to seek legitimacy. And how can you interpret the verses of the Quran when a person comes to you and they're charismatic and persuasive, you know, and they're, and they're presenting you all these verses on jihad? How, you know, most people are, are, are so ill-equipped to deal with this, yeah? Anyway, I, I just said to them, why can't you be like Abdul Sattar Adi, rahimullah? Okay, and if anyone, anyone knows Abdul Sattar, a man who devoted his whole life, he's passed away now, he devoted his whole life to helping the poor and the needy. Okay, and that's and if you say he's not shaheed, I don't know what is shaheed. Then okay, so I said, why don't you spend your whole life devoted to helping the poor, the needy, the ones who are suffering? And and you know what they said? It's too hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's it. That, I think that sums it up. It's too hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I think we can't we can't dismiss the the foreign policy aspect of this as well, right? Because I think it's all interlinked. Like us mentioning right at the beginning but you know there's a comment here merciful servant says this is a really you know good what? podcast I, I challenge no no I, 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 I want to challenge that foreign policy concept because look when Dhul Khuwaisra, the first of the Khawarij attacked the Prophet والسلام, accused him of being unjust accused him that you know that he uh, what is it to fear Allah he was yeah. the first of the Khawarij 
the first of the Khawarakia. Was there a foreign policy context? No. There was no foreign policy context. That's true. It was ideology. It was. Yeah, yeah. It is so ideology. But there is also a foreign policy aspect for mo for many of the youth who are ignorant and emotional and have that emotional attachment to what's going on with what's Britain and America been doing in some of the country. It's not a justification, yeah. but it is some of the reasons they, they, what some young people do use do. Yeah, as I an agree. excuse, if you like. Yeah? yeah, They exploit the vacuum. They exploit the political unrest in the world for their own agenda. That was my point. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, and it's no, a political agenda, by the way. It is yeah, yeah, a political yeah, yeah. agenda. Yeah. So and they were, uh, and, and it's a political agenda wrapped up in the garments of religiosity, in many cases for credibility, right? And this That's is it. another aspect. And Abu Tayyib, look, the Khwarij murdered Uthman radiallahu Yes. I want people to know this. They murdered one of the greatest Muslims who worked on the face of the earth. That the Prophet in the angels are modest before him. Okay, they murdered him. An old man. They pulled. He, they, they murdered an, you know, an aging old man, a companion of the Prophet guaranteed paradise. That is the mindset we're talking about. Mm. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And this comment here from Mercy of Servants, interesting. Uh, this is a really good podcast, but let's be honest: those who are on that flex don't care about your intellectual discussion. It's all emotive. So there is there is some truth to that. They feel the pain of the brothers and sisters, but so do we, so do we, so does everybody, right? I, I mentioned the hadith right at the beginning, every Muslim should feel it, but we still have a responsibility to stay within the confinements of what Islam teaches and how to deal with these things. And, and, you know, Emotions can be used in a good way and they can be used in a bad way. Emotions can be used in a way to motivate and do good, or it can be used to take over as consumers, and then we go beyond the boundaries of Islam. That's the point I was making earlier on. And then it leads on to another question, Elias, about, you know, the, the whole situation of Shamima Begum, for example. Obviously, that's the most, you know, prolific one that's out there in the, in the mainstream, which Jay Khan mentions in one of his comments as well. And, and there's, there's other people like her as well who've fallen into this situation. So what's your, what's your thoughts on that then? My, I know my view on Shamima Begum, and look, I'm gonna, I want people to be a bit patient. And obviously, I don't want to take time from Abdurrahman here as well, is that she joined... A bunch of Khwarizhi dogs. Okay, that's it. She joined a group of Khwarizhi dogs who are responsible for 10.5 million displaced people, a devastation and destruction of a whole country that will take decades upon decades to recover, the loss of over 200,000 lives, okay, and, you know, and then splinter movements on, on a global level. So she was part of this organization and she needs to be held to account for her actions through a legitimate process of law and through a legitimate legitimate due process. That's my view. Okay. And and you know you're right, that legitimate due process will take into account her vulnerabilities, the fact that maybe she didn't have agency at all. But I think we take this balanced view. You know, on one hand, I don't want Muslims jumping to her defense and saying, oh pull this, pull that. Yes, fine. But she has to be held to account for her actions. The reason that she's not being allowed back into the UK is very simple. Okay, is because we do not have the legal instrument to prosecute her. So rather, we have made uh, something as well, which is we've you know we've gone against international convention and made her stateless, which is also something which is not allowed. So it just shows you the double standards on on all 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 sides. I believe she should be allowed to come back to the UK. She should be held to account for her actions. She should go through the due process of law, 
and and, and that, that's my my view on that situation. I mean, but to be fair, yes, yeah, so I, I I don't disagree with that, but I think there's something else here as well. I mean, she was a 14 year old kid, man, who mm. was groomed. Let's be quite frank about this, yeah. She was groomed. She was naive. She was ignorant. She was stupid. She was whatever, right? 14 years old. We know what 14 year olds are like. They, they don't have a clue, right, about life and what's going on. So I think there is an element there, there about her being duped and, you know, sold, you know, false promises or whatever it might be. And I think there is an element there that we have to take into consideration with somebody like her, like any grooming victim, that there is, you know, that yes, okay, accountability, 100%, I agree with that. But there is something else here which we have to take in consideration with her age, the grooming that took place, the maybe the naivety and the emotional state of that person as well, maybe even some mental health issues, I don't know. But we've got to take, surely we've got to take some of those things into consideration as well. I agree, all of that needs to be taken into account, absolutely. But I'd like to begin with a very, very firm position on it, okay? Because I think, you know, it's important to make it absolutely clear to young people out there about the lack of Islamic legitimacy. I've done quite a lot of online lectures. I don't want to go through this whole point about the legitimacy or, or the, the complete illegitimacy of, of ISIS, yeah? Mm. However, you know, the fact of the matter is this is also a failure of mainstream Islamic scholarship that we have not educated the Muslim masses sufficiently to, to, to inoculate and insulate them from this extremism. So I think that's a, a fault on our part. Yeah. And I think yeah. a fault on the part of a lot of Islamic individuals who sat on the fence on this issue as well and didn't come out early on to actually uh, refute that. We had we had a window between 2011 and sort of 2013. They left in around 2013, 2014. 2014 was the main year when most individuals went from Europe and joined uh, ISIS. So we had a window to do it and we weren't doing it. We were quiet. We were napping on the whole issue. You know, I mm. think we have some blame in this matter as well. I agree. You know. Okay, let me let me quickly blast through some of these. These should be fairly easy questions. Um, why do Muslims shout Allahu Akbar when committing acts of terrorism? You know what? You'll be surprised how many times I get asked that question. You know that. Look, yeah? look, look, it's very simple. Yeah, that obviously they hijack all of these symbols of Islam. And of course, they're going to hijack Allah, Akbar, Allah is great. It's, it's just something they've hijacked and something that gives them a legitimacy and a validation for what the actions are doing. Look, for Muslims, we say Assalamu Alaikum, we say Alhamdulillah, we say Subhanallah, we say Allah, Akbar. These are part of our daily remembrance. Okay. And, what, and most of us use it in an appropriate and acceptable way because certain individuals have twisted and abused that should not be reflective of, of, of the whole. Okay, brilliant. Next one is. Uh, are Muslims allowed to blow themselves up and do they get virgins in heaven for doing so? I'm going to give that to Abdurrahman, go on. <laughs> Abdurrahman, this is on you, bro. Okay, I actually got a, a book on this, on uh, suicide bombing. Um, so maybe I'll, I'll give the, the, the PDF, Martyrdom Operations, online. Um, but I wanted, uh, if I, if you permit me, to comment on the previous question. Uh, the yeah, go issue. for it, go for it, bro. Emotion, youth, Shemir Begin, all comes into it. And this, subhanAllah, shaitan is not going to get a Muslim Use uh, who who has emotions of of compassion for his fellow Muslims when he sees them being persecuted, or even non-Muslims for that matter. Um, and these legit these fallen policy grievances are legitimate, just like what's happening at Aqsa. They do affect the Muslim, and they want to do something, and they feel impotent. It just so happens, however, that most of the people who went and go to join ISIS, hopefully that's trickled down to practically zero now. They are not radicalized necessarily before they go. They get radicalized once they land. 
The reason they are going is because they think they are doing something virtuous. That's why, and this is a particular trait of someone who's youth. We all know because we're a bit older in the teeth now. When you're young, you don't think straight. The age of maturity in Islam is 40. You know, as it said, like in the conspiracy that they killed Malcolm X before, or as he was reaching 40, before he could really hit his stride. The, all the prophets, with the exception of some like Isa alayhi salam, they, uh, like Muhammad became a prophet. Uh, he received revelation at age 40. That's why the Prophet said, and it was mentioned before, he, he gave three, three traits for the Khawarij. Very important. Young in the tooth, meaning what they haven't really developed, their mental, their faculty, their mental or emotional uh, stability yet. Fanciful, delusional dreams. These are not nightmares they're dreaming about. Good dreams, but they're delusional. We're going to go, we're going to beat the Americans, beat the Russians, beat the Zionists, we're going to carve out an Islamic state, we're going to bring justice to the world. This is delusion. With what? What are you going to do this with? You haven't got a pot to proverbial pee in. You know what I mean? So how are you going to do this? And then what did the Prophet say? They talk a good talk. The Khawarij talk a good talk. It's all nice. So it's upon us then to understand, look, you can't, well, you can, but then you can't, if we're not there giving that tarbiyah to these youth, if we're not providing the alternative narrative, then they will feel that I've got to do something. And many of the people say this. When I went there, I, I realized how bad it was. I realized that these people were psychopaths, sociopaths, and that is actually the psych psychological profile of many of the people in, uh, who go to ISIS, criminals, you know, wife beaters, uh, drug dealers, same with the guys who do the terrorist acts in, in Nice, in Paris. Uh, you look at their profiles, you know, they were, they were having problems with, 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 their, with birds, as we said, they had bird problems with women. And, you know, so they need, an, they need a, a letter. Others people, frankly, just went, went there because they wanted to get their leg over. They thought, I'm going to get me some, some uh, Yazidi slave girls. You know, this is some of the reasoning that people went to. It wasn't beca necessarily because they thought that uh, that I'm becoming like the Khawarij and everyone else is, is betraying Islam. It's because they thought they was doing something good. That's from the traps of shaitan. So we have to be cognizant of that and try to put those, uh, those bars in. That's why sabr is a very important uh, um, aspect of Islam, very important uh, institution of Islam. And we can't have the atheist understanding of sabr. An atheist understanding of, of, of peace, uh, uh, sorry, patience is sitting on your hands, being complacent. In Islam, sabr is proactive. It's why, that's why sometimes translated as steadfastness. It means that you're biting on your lip and you're taking that uh, frustration and you're thinking, this is a test from Allah. When Allah gifts me, when I'm worthy to carry a sword, when I'm worthy to stand as a man or woman in defense of my brothers and sisters, then Allah will give me that means. Until that time, I'm in like the Prophet was in Makkah. He had sabr. Anyone who says that, and this is what the Khawarij say, oh, so you're sitting on your hands? Is that what the Prophet did for 13 years in Mecca? He sat on his hands? So we're in the same position we are now. All scholars are generally in uh, agreement about this. We're in a Meccan phase where we don't have this uh, Medinan state. So we must bite on, our, uh, on our, ego, uh, our lips, as it were, and understand what would be, why did the Prophet, why did Allah forbid the Prophet from making jihad in Medina? The ayat, if you looked at them, they say, had you done so, had you tried to fight, you would have caused a calamity, a slaughter upon those who weren't part of it. Because the Quraysh had the power, they would have just attacked anyone and everyone. That's exactly what happens, is it not, in a reprisal to a terrorist act. They can go end up demolishing homes, killing women, children. For every one of theirs you take out, they take out a hundred of yours. That's why this is a problem with the youth particularly. It's why the Prophet mentioned it. 
as being a, and that's what Ibn Masood, one of the companions said, youth is a branch of foolishness. So a lot of this is our problem as those who are a bit more mature, as parents, that we don't provide the youth an outlet. We don't provide them that inoculation, to use the word of Sheikh uh, Elias, from these uh, nihilistic understandings. And that's why to end on, on, on this hadith, the same hadith where he described them with these traits, he said they pass through, the Quran does not go beyond their throats, and they pass, pass through the religion like the arrow passes through the game. The meaning, and that's why some of the scholars said they are disbelievers. Some of the scholars actually held the Khwarij, including one, some of the companions, the Khwarij who have left Islam. Why? Based on this hadith, that they leave the religion. So some said this is metaphorical. Others said no, it means they've become disbelievers because mm -hmm. Iman did not settle in their hearts and they pass through the religion. SubhanAllah, mm -hmm. what a evil description. And that's why Ibn Taymiyyah said when the ayat, uh, the ayat that says in Surah Bayna, hum sharrul bariya, this is regards to those who are disbelievers. But in our in our religion, Sharrul Bariya are the Khwarij. The worst of creation are the Khwarij. As one of the sheikhs said, why? Because they're the only group in Islam, the only sect who seek nearness to Allah by excommunicating excommunicating Muslims and shedding their blood. These are their two pathways to seek seek closeness to Allah by excommunicating a Muslim and then shedding his blood. So how I mean look at that twin, these are the two horns of this devilish group. So we can't dis we can't separate the issue of emotion. We have to recognize that this isn't as the brother merciful servant, brother or sister, excuse me, uh, said it. We have to recognize this is an emotional thing. This is how shaitan traps you based on your emotions, based on foreign, foreign policy grievances, based on triggers that have, uh, traumas that a person has suffered. Uh, you know, again, familial, uh, societal, financial, psychological, uh, sexual, whatever abuse. Uh, or misuse a person has, has had in their life, that's what shaitan will grab them on. So we have to be wary of that and stop it and kill it. And they are victims. They are victims. Shmeen Begin at, at that age, she was a child. Of course, now she's an adult. It's a different issue. I'm not going to get into that. Um, but at that time, she was a victim. And these and a lot of, lot of them is simply a, a, a team dynamic. Like the, the movie Four Lions, it was based on actual anecdotal stories from many uh, Muslims who went into these kind of jihad courses jihad trips they just wanted to be do something excited they want to fire off a few guns in america you can do that legally in england you can't do that in Syria, you can i want to shoot some guns i want to blow some you know put uh, crap up or whatever you know so that's what i want to i want to get my, i want to go and get myself a slave i want to i want to find an rpg i want to slit some throats it's it's kids behaving like kids behaving like idiots how the prophet described them that's exactly what they are and so you know that's that's upon us it's upon us now to put those safeguarding measures in and give them the alternative and finally this shows that because you're mentioning that it's too difficult it is too difficult real jihad or the foundational jihad obeying your parents trying to do well in school uh, uh shoveling the snow away from the drive of your neighbors uh giving uh looking after the orphan feeding the poor and needy that is really difficult teaching your younger siblings quran that requires serious effort I don't have time for that. I just want to go and blow stuff up. So, you know, that, that's something as well. These people want to Absolutely. leave the foundational jihad in order to go for this quasi-fake jihad, which is really terrorism. It's a, it's a Holly, the Hollywoodified type of understanding, isn't it? So, I mean, there's a good comment here by Shama Saeed. Keep the youth busy learning the deen and polish their character, character building and knowledge of the deen. I like that. I actually like that. Uh, okay, so next. Uh, 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 but, but, but there's another thing we do at IDC. Which is basically what, and, and Abdurrahman just mentioned it as well. We have you just, to. It just summarized our work, didn't he? Basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, we have to occupy the youth in what we call legitimate activism. Yes. 
they have to be part of something. They, you know, put that emotion into a force for good. They want to change the world, then yes, let us give them social projects to change the world. And they have to realize that their realm is to change themselves, their streets, their families, their peers, and not what is beyond there. You know, part of that hadith, min husnil islami mar'i, tarkahu ma la yani, part of one's perfecting Islam, leave that which does not concern you. This foreign policy, I know we have a sympathy for it. It does not concern you. If you want to get involved in this realm, study international politics, study uh, governance rules within Islam, do a master's in Islamic uh, uh, governance, yeah. Then on top of that, then get a job involved in in lobbying and advocacy work to deal with the multi-billion pound players at the UN, at the EU, and all. This there is there are ways. I know people say, oh, it's all a waste of time. So if it's a waste of time, then this is it. They end up becoming reactionary. You know, the point of the problem saying is this: yeah, get involved in legitimate means, legal means, Islamic means, inshallah. Good. Okay. Um... I'm going to quickly blast through some of these questions. Uh, are Muslims allowed to blow themselves up? Just straightforward? Uh, no, haram. It's uh, impermissible. It's impermissible to kill yourself. You know, and that's it. It's as simple as that. You know, do not put your hands to your own destructions. Suicide bombing. In fact, any form of violence against, obviously, innocent others who are under your protection or not even under your protection, you know, outside of the realm of war, theater of war, all of that, it's completely impermissible within Islam. So suicide bombing in every way, shape, or form is haram. Yeah, I think it's important to mention one of the doubts that the uh, the, the jihadis, and we, maybe we ought to define that term, or the neo-kharajites use is to say, no, but this is not killing yourself. You're defending Islam through this act of war. You're sacrificing yourself. However, we have a principle in the religion that which is built upon falsehood is itself falsehood. So if suicide, as Sheikh Aliyah said, Ustad Aliyah said, Aliyah said is haram, Forbidden absolutely unequivocally, then any kind, any other act derived from that which is haram will also be haram. It's just like saying, "Look, I'm going to go to Hajj from the earnings of a brothel, or from a, or from a, a pub." Well, it's a good deed, isn't it? Yes, but its foundation is is evil and, and sinful. So, in no way, shape, or form, and not only that, but suicide is alien. Uh, uh, the closest thing to suicide at the time of in, in the seat at the time of the prophet would have been not if they kill the enemy, uh, not if they kill themselves, but they were killed whilst trying to fight. There's a difference. In other words, your intention is not to die. Your intention is to defend or, or to pursue your enemy combatant. If you die, then okay, that was the will of Allah, and inshallah you will achieve martyrdom. But you don't kill yourself in order to kill others. That never happened. They could, they could have did that. They never did that. There are a few narrations that I use which are weak, but essentially the companions never intended to die in a battle, like any soldier. As uh, General Pat Patton has, has a nice quote, he said, the patriot is not the one who dies for his country, the patriot is the one who kills for his country. Of course, in the context of a state-sponsored state uh, or, or, or legitimate uh, religious authority. Yeah, Jazakallah khair. Uh, very, very good points there, actually. And, and, you know, Abu Tayyib, when you work out in the eight years of what we call Maghazi, of battles and campaigns from the second year of Hijra till obviously, you know, the end of the life of the Prophet, والسلام, eight years, when you look at the Maghazi in all this period of time, yeah, and you actually calculate the number of deaths that took place, they are actually very small. Okay, mm, mm. Uh, obviously on both sides, but even on, in the time in the, on the side of the non-Muslims who are the, the abject enemies of the Prophet 
The actual number of deaths are very, very small. Obviously, in the Battle of Badr, there were 72 individuals that were killed, and that was the highest casualties, 72 individuals, okay? Uh, and then, obviously, there was, in the Battle of Uhud, the Prophet lost many of his companions, okay? So what does that show you? And I, I think this is the thing. The Arabs, they had a certain code around warfare, and it was that they didn't want to kill each other, actually, interestingly, <laughs> yeah? Uh, and that followed through. It's interesting that followed through. That doesn't mean, as I said, we're pacifists. At the end of the day, ultimately, you know, the, the whole idea of jihad bin nafs, this whole idea of blood, fate, thirsty, hatred for the other, is so against what Islam is. Yeah. We have a hadith of the Prophet where a man at sword point, okay, there's two hadiths. One is Ali radiallahu an, where he's about to take a life. And, and imagine the whole fervor of a battlefield. He's taking a life. He has his enemy now vanquished. And the person says, La ilaha illallah. And he walks away. Okay, no, 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 sorry, sorry, it wasn't that. He spits at the Ali, he spits at him. And Ali walks away because he realized his pride had overcome him. And the other one is of a companion, I can't remember, who the person said, La ilaha illallah. And then he actually slayed him. He killed and then him. The he killed yeah, the Prophet yeah, yeah. Then said that what he had done is completely wrong. Did you obviously look at the sincerity of his shahada? This is why, really, the rules that govern warfare in Islam are so meticulous and they are so precise and they require so many noble characteristics that this rabble, this absolute shamble, shambolic rabble of people, of gangsters, without training, without any tarbiyah, without any Islamic adab and akhlaq, representing one of the most noble Islamic endeavors. That's why this is such an important thing that we speak on this issue. Mm. Yeah, good. There's, there's a few more questions and then, then we're going to sort of wrap it up there. Um, are Muslims allowed to kill or be violent to defend the Prophet Muhammad Like what we saw in France, like what we saw Charlie Hebdo, like with that that young, the, the student who killed the teacher, etc. So, no, this um, is not allowed. It's simple answer this is not allowed. End of. No Muslim is allowed to take vigilante action and take action into their own hand. Even, you know, in the defense of the, the honor of the Prophet, if you want to defend the honor of the Prophet, do so with noble characteristics. Abdurrahman, anything you want to add to that one? Yeah, this happened at the time of the Prophet. He was insulted. He was not only uh, insulted verbally. He was physically abused. Entrails were thrown over him. He was beaten. His, his, his companions were beaten in front of him. Did he take vengeance? Absolutely not. In fact, on one occasion, when one of the ladies who would be uh, abusing him in this way, throwing her, her trash, you know, when you go to the, the call of nature, and then in those days, you know, you just emptied it out into a ditch. You didn't have, you know, flushing sewage systems. She would empty it. Onto the Prophet as he passed by. What a, what a disgusting thing to do to such a pure and noble soul as the Prophet Muhammad. The day she didn't do this, the Prophet became concerned for her. What's happened to her? So he went to visit her. He found out she was sick and he went to show his respects because he cared for the one who is torturing him and abusing him in such a way. And of course, she embraced Islam on account of this. So the Prophet, him, we can't claim to, to have more love for the Prophet than his companions and his family. And he did not allow revenge to be taken in his regard. So we have to follow his son. If he didn't do it, who are we to do it? Why? Because there's a greater goal here, and that is to invite the people to the religion. You don't invite someone by killing them uh, or by, uh, by making Islam look uh, disgusting and vengeful. Ven revenge and vengeance has its place, but that's for the authorities. It's not, as Ustad as said, for, uh, for a vigilante. Absolutely. Jazakallah khair. 
Um, okay, why is it Muslims seem to be the only major group associated with terrorism? <laughs> is terrorism a Muslim monopoly? And you probably all heard this statement, guys, yeah? Not all Muslims are terrorists, but all terrorists are Muslim. Let's break that one down. Well, look, quite we frankly, can. you know, I think, I think we've covered it. And I think if you, if you read any book, I'm, I was just reading this just before that terrorism and the media. And I think that sums it up. The reason is quite simply. This, this is a good book as well, by the way, if we're going to share yeah, books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, 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 and look, the point of the matter is, come on. And just in the last hundred years, we've had anarchists. We've had extreme left. We've had extreme right. We've had fascist groups. We have nationalist groups. We've had Nazis. We've had, uh, what is it, uh, the IRA. We've had... You know, ETA, you know, the, the list goes on and on. We've had the, you know, suicide bombing of the Yama, the kamikaze pilots. The list goes on and on. We've had the Tamil Tigers and, the, and, and, and so many other groups responsible for terrible atrocities. It, it look, at the end of the day, it suits a political narrative of the war on terror, which is a multi-billion pound endeavor that requires a bogeyman, no doubt. In the next 20 or 30 years, someone else will emerge as another, the new bogeyman, and then the whole narrative will switch from communism, from Islam to, to another. Okay, and this is just the nature of, of, of uh, this cyclical kind of process. And at the moment, it seems that Muslims are the ones who are being tainted with this. But I, I like what Noam Chomsky said after 9-11. And he said that there's no such thing as negative publicity as such. Islam was in the press every single day. And when Islam is in the press every single day, we have a massive opportunity to counter the narrative. So we need to prepare, prepare with intellectual jihad. And this is the problem that most people, I will tell you, they're not prepared to do the hard work of the learning, of, the, of learning discourse, of learning how to articulate themselves, of engaging in these very simple you know, uh, discussions with their peers and with people they come across to challenge the stereotypes you know, people don't want to do that. And this is the whole tragedy of our time, that if, if we as an ummah spent our time educating other people rather than the whole hijacking of hijab, jihad for the last 40, 50 years, I've, I've strategically analyzed it. We have to analyze it on a strategic level. This is the other thing missing is this. Yeah, jihad is profoundly strategic. It is there to achieve an objective. And so that's why great minds get together and look at the strategy that is involved here. This is not just a bunch of young emotive people going out and doing what they want okay strategically if we spent all of our effort since the 80 from the 80s up until now doing educating people and building communities and building good for humanity guess what we would have created more positive change mm. okay no, rather no. than what we have done is that we literally have set the muslim world on fire with this reactionary behavior Hmm. Abdurrahman? Uh, I mean, this is patently false. If we look in uh, Xinjiang or East Turkestan, there is no place on earth and in, uh, in the last uh, 60 or so years that equates this Orwellian nightmare, uh, this dystopian reality that the Uyghurs are undergoing, Uyghurs and other Muslims, whereby they intend to reduce the population, according to their, their documents, to one third of its current amount. How? One third through sterilization one third through brainwashing and the other third through execution um there's no equivalence of this um if you just look at uh, and if you were to add up every not that we uh, should be obvious we're not condoning terrorism at all in any way shape or form if you to gather but if you to gather all of the victims of 
terrorists at the hands of so-called Muslims, these Khawarij, they would not equate to what happens, and that's over a what, 60 year, 50 year, whatever period, it would not equate to single year of how many deaths have, have occurred in these concentration camps. Likewise, the bombing of Dresden in, in three days in 1945, more German men, women and children were killed in three days than in 300 years that Muslims have, have managed to do. Likewise, uh, if you look at the Boer War, what was done to, the, and I'm only dealing with the Europeans now, other Europeans, white-skinned, blonde, blue-eyed Europeans uh, in concentration camp in South Africa, the Boers, descended from the, the Dutch, who were uh, put in, in camps by the British, and they were starved to death. More than all the Muslims have managed to kill as, as, as unjustifiable. Leopold in Congo, then you look at the British in, and the Mau Mau in Kenya. Yeah, yeah. This is, these are atrocities. Yeah, and, and, and of course, the, the Rohingya, according to the UN, the most oppressed people on earth. Palestine, the most consistently violated human rights, uh, consistently, um, over the past, uh, was it 60 plus years since, since the... Uh, uh, and, and the list goes on. So mm. this, is, this has been framed by those, uh, you know, as they say, it's not history, it's his story. This is the story according to one particular uh, spin, a particular slant. Uh, and again, uh, like and like the Sheikh said, it's all it's all good. We lap it all up because it's an excuse. It's an uh, ex um, uh, uh, it gives us the excuse or the or the reason to now respond and defend our religion and to shed light upon the truth. Okay, good. Jazakallah khair, brothers. A um, couple more questions left, and then we can wrap it up. Why don't this is a common one I get actually. This is a, this is a good one. Well. All this terrorism going on, you guys are saying that it's it's not Islam that says it. Why don't the mosques and the Muslim community speak out against it when it happens and deal with those people? Well, I think, you know, I, I think we are speaking about it. We've always spoken about it. And I think there are certain individuals who have always been at the forefront of doing so, yeah. I do also think that a lot of our mosques and institutions, however, I don't think they sit on the fence on it. Uh, I don't think they condone it either. It's just that I don't think they're equipped to deal with it, and they are quite apolitical. I would say 80% of the mosques in the UK and imams generally take an apolitical stance, and they will say, we don't talk about that stuff here. Okay, They don't want to open the Pandora's box. I don't think they can manage the issues thereafter. Um, but that, again, is where there is a bit of a crisis. They need to equip themselves with this. Why? Because it concerns the religion of Islam. And it concerns our youth in particular being misguided. So we therefore need to equip ourselves being able to deal with that. That is our jihad. I mentioned it. Our jihad actually at the moment coming out of Ramadan is to secure the next generation upon the correct understanding of Islam. That is the biggest struggle that we have, I think, of our time at the moment here in the UK. And when we divert from this to other these these other, I call it, you know, these these fantasies and delusions and follies, we've taken away from the battlefield here. The battlefield here is young people dropping out of Islam, afwaja in, in, in multitudes, yeah. Uh, and we need to inspire them, we need to motivate them, and we bring on to the correct understanding of what Islam is. So you're right, I think it's it's just I don't think it's uh, they condone this behavior. I just think that they're just not equipped. Abdurrahman, anything to add, bro? Yeah, I would, I would agree that some mosques obviously do this, some Muslim communities do this, some mosques don't because they're not trained. They Because they have a problem, frankly, in terms of their creed, their aqidah, then this is almost a subsidiary issue to them, jihad, so they can't engage with the children or with the youth about how to believe in Allah, how to 
understand who the Prophet is and how to follow him, let alone issues of uh, which, trans, which go now into geopolitics and, and things like that. But I will say this. I think, frankly, there are plenty of people. It's good. Sorry, let me backtrack. It's good that not every mosque and every community is speaking about this because it does require a foundation of creed, methodology, and knowledge. I think there's plenty of good people who do speak about this. More than enough, they are qualified. We just need to amplify their voices. Every single guest, I should imagine, without exception, male or female, who's ever appeared on your show, on the Muslim Jodi podcast, or on any of the programs on what is now Stream Islam, what was formerly Newcastle Fast FM, every single one of them will give you a consist consistent, clear, uh, and truthful, and loyal, and faithful to the scripture position uh, and, pr and prescription or, and prognosis on the, on the problem of, of terrorism and on elevating jihad above all of that uh, filth and, 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 and fluff. So that they're enough. Let's just amplify their voices. We don't need every mosque again, involved because they're not qualified, as Sheikh Aliyah said. Let the brothers and the sisters who are qualified, who have expertise, who, who didn't start talking about this only because it became sick, sexy since after 9-11, but they've always been on this, on this trip, if you want to call it that, because it was part of their methodology, it's part of their religion from the get-go. So let, let these brothers and sisters continue as they are and let them go and, and just fill in for the masajid and the, and the community leaders who don't know how to uh, uh, um, enunciate or to, uh, uh, or to explain these points themselves. Yeah, and there's a good comment here by Jay Khan. Let's get Elias on Good Morning Britain. That'll be that'll be a voice. <laughs> no, to no, add. no. You know what? I stopped doing mainstream media a long time ago, and the main reason is because look, they don't want to learn. Listen, they, uh, this is not a soundbite issue, and really, they want entertainment. They want to put you against somebody else and polarize the debate. I've been on LBC. I've been. I've done it. There was a time I used to do a lot of it, and unfortunately, they just tried to entrap you. So generally, hmm. I think no. You know, I'm more interested in talking to people on my street, talking to people around me. This is about influence and change, yeah? If every single one of us here and every single Muslim spoke to their peers, to their neighbor, to their work colleagues, and what do you think organically that, that, that creates a massive change process, Yeah, you know? So that's where we, I think sometimes we forget that this is where we need to do our engagement. Uh, of course, yeah, you know, the mass media is important. It does play an important role, but equally I found that you know, people twist and distort what you say. And uh, yeah, so it's, it's, it's difficult. <laughs> okay, last question, guys. Yeah, um, this should be a fairly easy one. We've, we've touched upon it already. This is the one that I get asked a lot whenever I go into schools and places like that. Um, is ISIS Islamic? Okay, look, there is a very simple way to answer this question. Okay, the first thing is, is there any legitimate, Islamic authority, scholar, Islamic governing body, uh, is senior Islamic scholar, Islamic, uh, you could say, board, uh, you know, around the world, anywhere, whether it's any Muslim country who gave them any uh, stamp of approval or validation or uh, uh, kind of recognition of their legitimacy. And wherever it is, whether it's Turkey, Indonesia, whether it's Al-Azhar, whether it's Medina University, whether it's Saudi, whether it's Emirates, whether it's Iran, whatever, even Shia, okay, whatever, yeah. There is not a single legitimate Islamic body on the global level who recognized their legitimacy and authority. But also, we also have a principle in Islam about Ahlul wal Aqad, the people of authority of the land of Balad al-Sham, of Syria. The Islamic scholars of Syria, and we have to realize that Sham, Syria, 
has an Islamic heritage which goes back all the way 1400 years. Some of the greatest scholars of Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah were from Syria. In fact, you know, in the time of Banu Umayyah, obviously we know the Khalifa was based obviously in Damascus as well. So this is Islam, Syria has so much Sunni Islamic heritage. And so we asked the scholars of Syria, the scholars of legitimate scholars of Syria, who themselves were murdered and killed by ISIS, believe it or not. And we have the names of hundreds of these individuals who spoke and they're given shuhada, uh, inshallah, yeah. They also said these people were interlopers. These people were outsiders. These people came and they had no legitimacy and they took the land by force. And so this is the principle that we have. You know, we ask them always bring your men, bring the people who say that what you are is legitimate. Name your scholars, name your Ahlul the people of authority and influence who have approved you. We have, as I said, Islam is not about gangsters coming in and forcibly evicting someone from someone's house. I always give this example, just to give people an analogy, and I don't want to kind of lengthen this too much, just give people an analogy, yeah? And look, this is the 27th night, listening here, inshallah, this is an ibadah, they'll accept it as well, yeah? I mean. Imagine I went to, uh, tell you, imagine I walked into someone's house, and I said to this Muslim whose house I walked into, uh, this is my house, <laughs> these are, this is, your, your family is now my slaves, your wife is now mine, and everything in this house is my possession. The person says, no, no, mate, no, that's not right, he'll say, yeah, <laughs> okay. He says, yes, it is, because look at my mates. Do, do that in a Geordie accent, bro, do that in a Geordie accent. <laughs> not a London <laughs> you know, and then I say, look at my, say, look at me, mates. No, no, anyway, that's it. <laughs> okay. I said, and I bring in all my heavies. Okay, and so yes, I said, I'm bringing all my heavies, and I terrorize that individual, I say, this is mine now. And that person, even if they are sympathetic to the so-called narrative, yeah, will say, no, no, it's not the law of this country. I'm going to go to the legitimate authority of the police. And then what I do is I simply extinguish them. Okay. And I say, this is mine now. Every single one of us, 99% of whom would say, 100%, if anything, would say, that is totally unacceptable and illegitimate, and that gives me no authority whatsoever. And they will say, you are contradicting the law of the land. And they will say, these guys will say, oh, I'm going to call the police, the so-called kuffar police. Uh, this is against the law of the country. Can you see this? Yeah, That's, that is essentially what, is, what ISIS did in Syria. And that is why in no way, shape and form we condone this, because Islam, as I said, it's based on a due process and noble principles that are held to account. The, the people are held to account according to these principles. And we are not vigilante gangster warlords. And if anyone is interested, you know, I do a much lengthier lecture on this, where I show the origins with the Ba'athist party forming with elements of uh, Al-Qaeda in central Iraq, post obviously the, uh, you know, uh, what is it? Uh, you know, the surge in central Iraq, and that was the, the foundings of ISIS alongside. And the, the real reality is this, when we look at today, where are, it, it's not about Baghdadi, and this is the question that people call out. Ultimately, ultimately, you know, the people responsible who make the decisions for this are invisible, are completely invisible. And I'm not going to get into all the details of this. Yeah. This is another lecture in itself. Good. Abdurrahman, you want to you answer that one as well, please, bro? Yeah, just briefly, there's a very popular uh, novel, um, about a guy called Tony Montana, 
made into a movie which talks about how infidel castro released the the the, the dirge or the what's the word the, the dregs of his prisons onto america's shores mm. so that they would then uh, you know cause havoc uh, with their hyper criminality uh, and and whatnot that's exactly what happened under bashar al-assad's bashar the butcher's uh, reign he let out of prison these psychopathic uh, takfiris who had been previously imprisoned for being part of uh, Al-Qaeda in Iraq and he, they were basically patsies willing on, on, on whether they knew or not um, to create, to do his bidding for them uh, and you know there's a nefarious agenda beh behind it, behind them as Ustad uh, Elias was alluding to and uh, I mean I've come across in my lifetime in, in a previous line of work or well let's say as, as, as our Muslim duty let's say um, enough of them you know there's there's just something not right um, uh, besides being amongst the thickest and I mean in, 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 in what we understand about the absolute dumb gormlessness individuals you could meet um, absolutely naive and as I said sociopathic psychopathic uh, their leaders have suffered from narcissist, narcissism uh, syndromes and all kinds of stuff, criminal elements rampant amongst them. Um, they, they, they were rats playing to the tune of a Pied Piper. Not only are they not Islamic, they are antithetical to Islam. They are the ones who, and most of Ahl-Sunnah, uh, the, 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 the rightly guided group who uh, Sheikh Elias referred to, uh, would agree that they're the ones about whom the Prophet said, had I met them, or had I, had I came, they, they came in my time, I would have slaughtered them with the slaughtering of Ad. Ad are one of the people of the past nations who Allah destroyed in one blast because of their corruption and their rebellion against Allah and, and his, the messengers that were sent to them and the prophet that was sent to them. And the prophet said, I would have did the same to them had they came in my time. So that's what we think of them and that's how we, we hope we deal with them. We don't mourn for them. Uh, as uh, as uh, John Major famously said about one uh, dictator, I for one will not mourn for him. So likewise, uh, better off dead, uh, uh, you know, than uh, than alive. These scum. Jazakallah khair. I think um, br brilliant answers, guys. I really appreciate that. I think it's good for, like I said, the whole purpose of this. Those ten questions. Um, it's to empower those who are listening from the Muslims to be able to use this knowledge and information that you've got, so that you can you know, um, answer some of those doubts that people have in your lives, right? For non-Muslims to hear that, and we will be using this, packaging it up and using it, inshallah, for non-Muslims to hear it and get a better understanding of uh, where Islam really sits with all of this. Um, there's a question here by... Actually, yeah. There's, there's quite a few comments there, which I don't think we've got time for, basically. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so let's wrap it up there, guys. Um, uh, Elias, do you want to give some final comments before? I mean, I did want to talk about. I did want to talk about the breakdown, some of the so-called violent verses of the Quran, but we haven't got time yeah. for that. Maybe well, we could do that in another show. Look, I, I, again, I think it's really inappropriate to even refer to them as violent verses of the Quran. That's what I said. The so-called, yeah, yeah. The so-called, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Because look, and I, I think it's very, very simple. Uh, for fourteen, again, I've mentioned this quite a bit. For, for fourteen hundred years, we have had an Islamic scholarly tradition. Uh, people who have devoted their whole lives to the study of the Quran and the tafsir of the Quran. And we have our famous tafsir as well out there. And we've had not one or two, but tens of thousands of scholars over, over the last 
1400 years who have devoted themselves to this Islamic science. And when they take the 147 verses on the Quran in relation to uh, bearing arms, uh, they come up with a consistent analysis of this. There's a complete ijma based on these principles. And it's only those people who are said, who are the naive, who twist, who distort. Because look, let us be absolutely clear. You can take any religious book, and even Allah Ta'ala says this in Surah Al-Imran, those people who have a disease in their heart and they wish to twist the book. You can take every single religious book on the face of the earth and twist it. And if you are sufficiently charismatic enough, you will persuade followers. And if they are sufficiently naive and not equipped with the skills to have the critical thinking to challenge your narrative, they will fall for it. So that, that, that's not unique in any way, shape or form to Islam. But what is unique to Islam is 1400 years of Islamic scholarship on this. And every single one of them comes up with a consistent overall analysis of these, these verses and confine it to the realm, as I said, of governance, based on the principles that we've spoken about. So I think that answers that question. Now, my final piece of advice to everyone here is this, to sum up everything. For 21 years, we've been experiencing this war on terror and we've been reacting to the war on terror. And this reactionaryism, if anything, if we look at it today, has not in any way, shape or form, I believe, helped our Muslim ummah. Yeah. So we've got to change our strategy. And our strategy, I think it comes back onto the Makkan principles of first building ourselves up correctly based on Islamic principles, knowledge, etiquette and understandings, and then engaging our societies with an honest dawah of engagement with them and to then build the influence and change. Okay, the humiliation is upon us because we've completely purely and simply left our religion. That's it. It's as simple as that. And I, and I want this decade to be the decade of us moving away from this narcissistic, nihilistic, reactionary paradigm towards really being proactive, to really now building, educating, enlightening, okay, and, and, move, and not reacting when they hit the stick and we jump, okay. And, you know, uh, you know I, I hope we move away and I hope we learn the lesson. We really need to learn the lesson, you know, uh, of... of uh, what's happened over the last 20 years on, on the war on terror and the war on terror generation. Absolutely. Jazakallah khair, Elias. Abdurrahman, um, final word from you. Yeah, just to, to reiterate and con uh, concur with all of that, we, this uh, having to react and, and you know, play, play to someone else's tune, it's, it's, it's quite um, tedious uh, now and it's, and it's going to continue. We do not have, as Muslims, anything to apologize for. Just like the average non-Muslim doesn't need to apologize for Jimmy Savile or, or Hiroshima Nagasaki, Dresden or whatever it might be. Likewise, we don't have to apologize for those who our scriptures and our scholars have, as Sheikh Aliyah said, been consistently opposed to. And we have to understand that part of this is a way to stifle legitimate cries uh, against uh, uh, for, for, for justice against injustice, such as what we're seeing in uh, Palestine the other day, uh, yesterday, so long as they're upright towards you, be upright towards them. Implicit within this, if they're not upright towards you, if they treat you badly, then you don't need to, to apologize and find a way, find a way to earn Allah's nusra, his nasr, his help, his assistance and his victory. Be deserving of that true Islamic state, not the pseudo kharijite uh, uh, dis, the, dis, the despotic state, but the true Islamic state, fi find it within ourselves by focusing on cultivating ourselves 
not being reactionary, but training, as, as the Sheikh said, ourselves and our families and our societies and our neighbors, our non-Muslim neighbors in this non-Muslim society, upon the principles of Islam, upon the uh, uh, directing people to worship Allah and His oneness, upon the Sunnah, the prophetic path, who is a, a path of mercy and justice, and then you'll find all of these issues will fall into place anyway, because when Allah Himself intervenes with His divine intervention, then there's no one who can do anything to lift His uh, justice uh, against the unjust. So we just have to make sure we're, we're worthy of that. And that's, as the Sheikh said, the Muslim way to, to be have steadfastness, be patient with the trials for 13 years, call into one uh, worship of one, one God, and then we will get our Medina. Then Allah will give us uh, establishment in the earth. You help Allah, I help his religion, then Allah will help you, and he will plant your feet firmly. Amen. Jazakallah khair. <clears throat> we'll wrap it up there, inshallah. Um, I'm not going to give any more to uh, add, add anything else to what you both said there. So we'll, we're going to wrap the show up there, inshallah. We'll be back tomorrow night. Um, we'll continue some of this discussion, I think, maybe, and we'll be talking about another hot topic um, on the, the issue of sexual grooming. Again, how that is linked to Islam and Muslims and how it's been used as a narrative. So we'll wrap it up there, inshallah. Jazakumullah khair, everybody, for listening. Uh, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.